The message tonight is water baptism. Water baptism is um, sometimes um, misunderstood. Some believe that this baptism in water guarantees their entrance into heaven, but it does not. Uh, I came out of the Catholic religion. I was born in Mexico City. I was um, baptized, confirmed in the Catholic Church. When we moved to the United States, uh, we were in L.A. by Huntley Drive. I went to Our Lady of Loretto until first grade where I learned English. But it just was understood that if I died because of the sprinkling of when I was a baby by the Catholic Church, that that took away original sin, which is not biblical. And we'll see that as we move along. Um, that's not what the Bible teaches. Um, first of all, we'll see later on that water does not take away or forgive any sin at all. If you use some soap, it might take away some dirt, but certainly no sin at all. Um, others believe that infant baptism is necessary again um, because of that original sin, and that's why the Catholic Church uh, teaches that. Um, otherwise, if the child died, he would have to go to limbo. And um, and I don't even know if limbo exists anymore because the doctrines of the Catholic Church alter and change so often. I, I don't keep up with them anymore. And yet others believe that if you are not baptized um, in water, though you are saved, that you still will not enter the kingdom of God. And that's absolutely wrong, as we'll see, because you are saved through the atoning work of Jesus Christ, faith in his work, his death and resurrection, and nothing else. So there's both errors about water baptism and religion, as well as in the Christian church. In view of these um, misunderstandings, we want to look at the subject of water baptism and give you... Six things that we'll look at. They will kind of cross-reference each other and and point out how water baptism is identified with. And um, rather than giving you all six and make you go crazy trying to write them down, we're going to take one at a time. (laughs) And we'll just develop them as we go along and they'll all come together. First, we want to see what water baptism and the fact that it was practiced by the Jews uh, for the Gentiles. Um, those who were converted that were not Jews at first. So these were proselytes. So when a Gentile converted into Judaism, they were called a proselyte. A proselyte were of two categories. First, God-fearers. Those who embraced the Jewish religion but did not become circumcised. Now we're talking about men, not women. Now, the uh, Islamic faith They often will do that to women, which is a horrible thing. They mutilate them. And this often is done when they they, uh, uh, kidnap uh, Christian women and sell them as slaves, which is an inhumane thing to do. But this is for men. So those who were God-fearers were not circumcised, but they embraced all the uh, law, the rituals, and all that. And proselytes of the gate 
were of the second category. And these were the ones who not only embraced the Jewish religion and its dietary laws and everything, but they were willing to be circumcised regardless of their age when they proselytized. Um, you might say maybe there were, there were those that were heart, half-hearted committed and those that were full-hearted committed, one of the two. But the word baptism means um, to be immersed or submersed. Um, sprinkling is not baptism. It means to be enveloped. So if I take a glass of water and I pour water in it and it's not full, that's not baptism. If I fill it to the very top, it's full, but it's not baptized. If I take this glass and fill up the sink and I dunk it underneath, now it is baptized. It is fully enveloped by water completely around. That's what the word baptism means. Now, the Jews, as you know, were sons of Abraham. They were born into the family of God as they were born into the nation of Israel. And they believe in God. And they followed the Mosaic law. And their hope was in the Messiah to come. And they were heirs by promise to Father Abraham. So water baptism was practiced um, by the Jews for the Gentile converts, but not for Jews. Okay? The Jews were not water baptized, uh, only for the Gentiles. Secondly, water baptism was preached and practiced by John the Baptist. John the Baptist came and he appeared after 400 years of silence. Malachi being the last prophet, he closes the Old Testament. And then all of a sudden, God opens the relationship with Israel once again. And uh, John the Baptist comes on the scene preaching repentance. Um, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he is baptizing. Uh, here in Mark chapter 1, uh, verse 4. It says, John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. So, this repentance unto remission of sin was in view of the Messiah to come. Mark marks it here. Luke 3, 3, 3 uh, 7, 29, and also 20, verse 4. And you find it throughout the synoptics. He came from the wilderness, if you remember. We've, we've been in the Gospel of Luke, so it should be fresh in our minds as we've been tracing from the beginning the information that Luke gives to us and no other of the synoptics gives us. And he came preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins that were to come through the Messiah, who himself would be baptized by John. Uh, and, uh, and we'll see that as we move along. And John was commissioned by God um, to baptize uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 32 and 33 tells us that. And John was sent as the precursor or forerunner of Messiah, And you remember that John the Baptist was the cousin of Jesus. He was six months older than Jesus, okay? The angel Gabriel went to Elizabeth and um, first to Zacchaeus, uh, Zacharias, his father, and, uh, and then to Mary. And they were six months apart. And when Mary heard about it, she went to visit Elizabeth till the birth of John the Baptist. And, and God was putting it all together. John would baptize Jesus the Messiah... At which time, the father would give him a sign. The sign to John was, and whoever he saw the spirit 
in the form of the shape of a dove descending upon him, he would be the Messiah. And so as you read the scriptures, Jesus came out and John said, um, I, I must be baptized of you. And Jesus says, no, we must fulfill all righteousness. Because Jesus being God, completely holy, completely sinless, was not being baptized for any sin, but he was being baptized in the place of man as he was going to be the Lamb of God to take with us into the world. And it was a mark and a sign for John to identify who the Messiah was. John was called the Baptist for that very reason, due to his commission of baptizing. In fact, he told the uh, Pharisees and the scribes, the brood of vipers, how can you guys think you can escape the wrath to come? Offer fruits unto repentance. And so he rebuked them before all the crowds as he baptized there in the wilderness. And John also addressed all Jews, even the religious leaders there in Matthew chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. He told the Pharisees and Sadducees they were Jews and the religious leaders that they were um, brood of vipers, Matthew 3, 7. Um, so John was a little different. I remember John was born in the priestly family. He should have been prepared for the priestly duties. And that was a um, apprenticeship from age 25, the Old Testament tells us, to age 30. They would enter the uh, priestly duties at 30, and then they would be retired at 55. Uh, but he never got to be a priest. Because God called him to be a prophet. If you remember, Ezekiel was the same thing. Ezekiel was in the priestly line, but he, and he prepared and everything else. But then they went into captivity, and he never fulfilled it. But God made him a prophet to the nation. But then God took him back to Jerusalem, that vision, and took him through the whole temple. Okay, But he never became a priest. John asked them there in Matthew 3, 7, and 8... Uh, who had warned them to flee from the wrath to come, as I said earlier. So in other words, they, because they were Israelis, they were of the family of Abraham, they thought that they were in automatically. You know, sometimes um, children who are privileged in maybe wealthy families or family of historical precedents or something, and they, they, they are born and they live with such an entitlement that they can do what they want and get away with whatever because daddy has the lawyers or the money. It's kind of the same thing with the Pharisees as they look down on the Gentiles thinking that they were uh, nothing but dogs and that they were superior to them. Um, and John rebukes them uh, for that. He told them they had to bear fruit worthy of repentance in Matthew 3.8. So that's always the true evidence of your true relationship with God. It's not that you, uh, I was just talking to my grandson Gage and telling them that, you know. I said, it's not that you just go to church. That doesn't make you a Christian. It's not just that you have a Bible. It's not just that you can quote scripture. It's not even that you serve in the ministry. It's not even that God uses you. But the fact that, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Does he direct you? Does he guide you? Does he speak to you? Does he convict you? Does he chase you? Does he reprove you? That's the evidence that you have a living relationship with Jesus Christ. And you know you're a Christian. 
You're not following a man. You're not following a movement of a church. You're, you're following the person who saved you, who convicted you of your sin. And, uh, and he's the one that's guiding and directing your life. That's what makes you Christians. You've trusted him. So he rebukes these leaders who uh, saw themselves as elite individuals. Uh, and yet they were uh, um, like sepulchers full of uh, dead men's bones, Jesus said. Now, in Matthew 3, 9, John gave them a stern warning. He told them not to trust in the fact that they were children of Abraham. Do you remember the book of Jeremiah in chapter 7? As Jeremiah is telling them that they're going to go into captivity. And God tells them to go to the door of the temple, the gate of the temple. And he began to proclaim, rebuking them. Don't say the, 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 uh, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. Don't trust in lying words. Saying because we're Jews, the temple's here. God would never destroy his temple. It's false security. It's false assurance. You're living apart from God. You're, obeying, you're not obeying God. You're rebelling. You think just because you're in the temple, just because you're in the promised land, that God won't bring judgment. And he warns them. And there's always that danger as God works in a new generation when people are born again. Uh, when God worked through the Jesus movement, the late 60s, early 70s, through the ministry of Pastor Chuck Smith at Costa Mesa. God just poured out His Spirit and many of us got born again. And God just ripped us out of the world and God just turned our life around and, and we began to just seek the Lord and God raised people up and we began Bible studies and God turned them into churches and by His grace. But the danger is, after us, our children, the next generation, grandchildren, will they just feel entitled just because dad's a Christian, mom's a Christian, grandpa's a Christian? No, they have to be born again or they will never enter the kingdom of God. And so there's always that danger in each generation where God pours out His Spirit and does a new incredible work. John told them about the coming judgment in Matthew 3.10. He told them that even now the axe was laid to the root of the trees, meaning judgment. He told them that every tree that did not bear fruit would be cut down and cast into the fire. And he's talking to them. Now, there are a lot of people who, who today sit in church and they say, Oh, no, no, no. A Christian cannot be deceived. A Christian cannot walk away. If you're born again, you're eternally secure. Really? Show me one verse. What about all the warnings? What about the words of Jesus? If any man does not abide in my words, I will cut him off. John 15. If anybody would bring up the even possibility, and it's the person of Jesus, do you think he's just joking around? Colossians says you must continue. Paul says in Romans chapter 9, if God cut off Israel, don't boast against the root lest he cut you off also. So you cannot stack the scriptures against all the warnings. We must abide in Christ Jesus. We must continue. We must bring forth fruit. We must live a life of repentance. I'm not saying that when you blow it, you're lost. No, you're in, you're out, you're saved, you're lost. No. But when people mess with sin and they go back in the world, 
I don't think many come back. I think it's the exception that come back. Then there are others who are born again and regardless of their difficulties, ups and downs, they keep going forward. Others vacillate. Others blow it, get in trouble, come back. But others blow it and they don't get right and they go back in the world and they never make it back. The warnings are both in the Old Testament as well as the New. How can I just ignore them all? How can I just say uh, there's no possibility? It happens because we bring our own systematic theology of Calvinism and we force it into the Scripture. Because if you believe in Calvinism, you believe that you were eternally predestined and elected. And nothing can change that because it's by God's decrees. But the word decrees is only mentioned one time in the Bible. And it's never regarding salvation. So where does the doctrine come from? It comes from the Catholic Church, from St. Augustine, where John Calvin got his theology. He's one of the reformers that came out of the Catholic Church. And that passed on to the pilgrims. The pilgrims came over to America, and there you have it. And that's how it comes across. But you have to really go out of your way to ignore many, many scriptures. Simple illustration, you as a parent warn your children about many things. And when you warn your child not to go beyond the fence in the front yard because you live in a very busy avenue, do you warn them because there's no possibility of them going out? Or because there is. It's simple. Let's give God a break. When God gives a promise, He is faithful to His promise. When God gives a warning, He's faithful to the warning. You can eat of every tree in the garden, except one. If you do eat, dying you will die. He gave a warning, He gave a promise. There came a consequence. It was a real warning. There were real consequences. And so we can't ignore those things. It's impossible. So water baptism was preached by John the Baptist. Coming judgment. But they felt so secure, so fixed. Self-righteous. Thirdly, water baptism is... Um, Distinguished from the baptism of the Holy Spirit. John clearly declared the inferiority of himself and the superiority of Jesus. Uh, you find this in Matthew 3.11, Mark 1.8, Luke 3.16, and many other passages, a couple other in John. Uh, John baptized in water. Uh, this we are clearly told in all the synoptic gospels. Jesus was the one among them whose shoelaces, he said, he was not worthy to loosen. And he would baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. So John says, I baptize you in water. But Jesus is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Completely distinct baptism as we're going to see. And he distinguishes himself from Jesus Christ as the inferior, he the superior. John the man would baptize in water, and Jesus never 
baptize anybody in water. The Gospel of John in chapter 4 is the key verse. It tells us plainly. Chapter 4 of John verse 2, he says, Though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples. Jesus, as well as John, did not want to confuse the people. John has just said, I baptize in water, but there is coming one among you whose shoelaces I'm not worthy to loosen. He shall baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. Two distinct baptisms, okay? Jesus here by John is declared that he never baptized in water. His disciples did the baptism for him. To not confuse John who baptized in water and he who would baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. Very clear. Jesus, the God-man, baptizes in the Spirit. No man can baptize in the Holy Spirit. Now, we're going to see as we move along that sometimes we may lay hands and pray that God would baptize in the Holy Spirit, but the hands do not have that power. The person praying is not the one who does it. It is the sovereign work of Jesus Christ who is the only baptizer of the Holy Spirit. Now, the baptism of water is inferior to the baptism of the Spirit then. In Matthew 3.11 it says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to loosen. He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire once again. The baptism in water is a ritual or a sacrament that affirms salvation and not the actual salvation. Example, a baby's born. The birth at 10.30 p.m. Johnny Martinez, born. When you leave the hospital two days later, they give you a birth certificate. Now, the birth is one. The birth certificate is only a confirmation or affirmation of his birth. It is not the birth. Okay? And that's the distinction between salvation and the sacrament or ritual of water baptism. Um, the baptism of water was an initiatory rite to be incorporated into the body of the church. Once a person was verified and assured that they were born again, then they would baptize them in water as a ritual uh, and an indication of incorporating them into the church. But the real incorporation is not by water. That was only the public aspect of it. The real incorporation to the body of the church of Jesus Christ is your new birth. Okay? The child is born to the human race when he comes out of his mother's womb. The birth certificate doesn't do that. <laughs> it's the birth that does that. Okay? Very important. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is superior in that Jesus alone baptizes men and women for service. The empowerment for service in Acts 1.8. Jesus said, You shall tarry in Jerusalem till you be endued with power from on high. For you shall be witnesses to me, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the empowerment for service to be a witness for Jesus. 
He says it in Acts 1.8 very clearly. And they were to tarry there and the Holy Spirit came upon them. The Ephesian disciples, if you remember, um, in Acts 19, uh, 4 through 5, they were baptized in water unto John's baptism. Then, in the name of Jesus, by Paul. And when Paul then had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them. The word upon is the word at P. The very same preposition that you have in Acts 1.8. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. So, the Holy Spirit is with us when we're non-believers. Convicting us, trying to bring us to salvation as we hear the gospel. With us. When we're born again, the Holy Spirit comes in us. E-N in the Greek. When the Holy Spirit comes upon us, baptizes us for empowerment, for service, the word epi. E-P-I. And there are various synonymous terms that are equal with the epi experience, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the power from on high, the promise of the Father, and about four or five other ones. As we've done the study of the baptism, we have them all uh, enumerated there. Um, the baptism of the Spirit at times is accompanied with gifts of the Holy Spirit, but no one gift is the evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, there are Christian denominations that teach that speaking in tongues is the only and true evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I reject that. It's absolutely wrong. The Bible tells us that the gift of tongues is the least of the gifts. It is legitimate, but it is the least of the gifts. It is not um, superior. But unless it's interpreted, then it really has no edifying aspect to it. But when you have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you have two gifts that appear all the time in the book of Acts. Tongues and prophecy. Now, how are we going to decide which is the evidence? You can't. All we can say is that at times in the book of Acts, when people are prayed for, sometimes hands are laid on, when they do indicate that they were baptized, we do see gifts that accompany the baptism. But because we read 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, and Romans 12, we know that no one gift is ever the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So, it's wrong to indicate. First, that everybody can speak in tongues. That's not true. Paul says, do all have the gift of teaching? The answer is no. If you say yes, you flunk. Do all have the gift of evangelism? No. Do all speak in tongues? No. How in the world can a denomination or a Christian say that everybody should and can speak in tongues? Absolutely unbiblical. So Paul corrects the wrong teaching about tongues. So the baptism does accompany, uh, often it is accompanied with gifts sometimes. The two most common that we see is tongues and prophecy. But we certainly can't limit it to those, but those are the ones that appear. Now, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is for empowerment through Jesus, and it's distinct from the fruit of the Spirit. Sometimes people mix the two. 
The fruit of the Spirit is in Galatians, um, as you know, in um, 5.22. And so many people say, there are groups sometimes that say the, the true evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is agape love. No, it isn't. It's the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22. And it's singular. In the English, it is plural. Fruits with an S. The Greek is singular. The fruit of the Spirit is agape. Everything after agape are manifestations of agape. There's only one fruit. So to teach that the fruit of the Spirit is the true evidence of the baptism is also wrong. You must distinguish between the empowerment for service and being a witness for Jesus from the fruit of the Spirit. There are two distinct things. So water baptism is distinguished from the baptism of the Spirit. And you can see how people mix things up and they confuse them. Now, water baptism was now after Jesus rose from the dead, practiced those that followed Jesus at conversion. Um, Acts one twenty two, Acts 10.37, Acts 13.24, three passages where they were water baptized. They had repented from their sins in the name of Jesus Christ. The gospel is preached. And as people agree through the conviction of the Holy Spirit that they are sinners, lost, enemies of God, and the wrath of God is upon them, then they can understand the gospel that God wants to save them and that he died for them and he rose from the death and he made the payment for their sins and that God requires repentance. And as they call on the name of the Lord and repent from their sins and ask him in their heart to save them, then they are converted. They are born again through the gospel. And now water is able to be administered to them in baptism. Not before being born again, but after being born again. They identify themselves with Christ through their repentance. They had left their old life behind, their lifestyle, and they made a complete turnabout. A person that says they are born again, and they are still living in the world the same way they were before, they're religious, but they have not been born again. When I was born again, I was up in Santa Barbara Potter, partying one weekend and when I came back I got born again and the next weekend I was in a Bible study my life just turned around and I wasn't raised in church I uh, that's not where I was so there is a radical transformation when you're born again you know that you know you cannot do what you used to do you know that you know you cannot go that way anymore. Now you're aware that you have still the capacity and potential, but you know that you know better and you have the ability to say no to sin now as you depend upon Jesus Christ. That's the true evidence that you are born again, not merely religious. That is why we do not baptize infants. Because an infant cannot repent when they baptized me as an infant in Mexico City where they sprinkled me nobody asked me if I wanted to be sprinkled or saved I didn't understand nothing okay infants can't do that by the way 
children under the age of knowledge, whatever that may be, 6, 7, 8, they're all different. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 7 that the child of a saved parent is sanctified, set apart, protected by God until the age of knowledge. That is if both parents are born again or only one. So the saved individual, be it husband or wife, are a benefit to the non-believing husband or wife and the child. They are recipients of the benefit of the believer. Now, the husband is not sanctified. The wife is not sanctified. Only the child. But the husband and wife who is not born again, they receive the benefit of God's blessings on the believer and the witness of the believer that they might be saved, but they have to repent themselves. And that is one thing that's always a burden to those who are unequally yoked, be it through disobedience or be it because they come to Christ after they've been married from the world. Sometimes it's not always known which way it happens. Now, what we do is we dedicate children, the babies. So we dedicate them as Daniel and as Jesus and John the Baptist were dedicated. And then when they come of age and they are born again, I will we'll talk with them or somebody, one of the elders will talk with them. The parents will come up to them and say, you know, my child, you know, they want to be born again. They want to be baptized this Sunday and... You know, uh, and, you know, says, well, how old are they? They're seven, eight, nine. Well, let's talk to them. And we talk to them, see if they understand what the gospel, what repentance is. And then we make a determination. If, if, if we see that they are answering properly and they have made us, then we'll water baptize them. But we want to make sure that, that we're not just dunking people for the heck of it, okay? Uh, again, if you're not born again and I dunk you, you're just a wet sinner. That's all you'll be, okay? Um, Children over the age of accountability do, uh, do need to repent, and then we will baptize them in water. Now, the baptism of John was inferior to the baptism in water after the death of Jesus because it was in fulfillment of the fact, no longer a future thing. So, uh, when John the Baptist was preaching, Jesus was here, but he hadn't died yet. Now, when they believed in faith, it was just like those of the Old Testament. It was just as good. But it was before the death of Christ, not after the death of Christ. After the death of Christ, then the baptism of water is looking back to the cross, okay? When John the Baptist was preaching, they were looking forward to the cross. And that's the only distinction that way. Uh, it was prophetic of the coming Messiah. It was a baptism unto repentance. And Apollos was instructed, remember... In Acts 18.25, by Achille and Priscilla, in the more perfect way by them. Because he was only teaching and preaching the baptism of John and not of Jesus Christ. Paul asked the disciples at Ephesus, if you remember, in Acts uh, 19, uh, 4 and 5. He says, and he said to them, unto what then were you baptized? So they said, unto John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized you with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So he rebaptized them in the baptism under the name of Jesus Christ. Okay? Though they were baptized at the baptism of John, he rebaptized them. So water baptism was preached by the disciples and the apostles of Jesus Christ. So we see the pattern that moves forward. Now, 
Water baptism was and is a symbol of the reality of salvation then, but a public confession only, not that the fact that it makes you born again. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6, um, verse 4 through 7, that we are buried with Jesus through baptism unto death in verse 4. In verse 4 also, um, we are to walk in the newness of life just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. In 5, we are, re we are united with, together with Jesus in the likeness of his death, even so we are united together in the likeness of his resurrection. So when we take you out in the water, we take you to the water, and then when we, you've, you've got your back to the world as you're walking out to the water, if you were in a lake or an ocean or whatever, maybe you're a tank, and then when you turn around, then we take you under, and symbolically we are putting the old man underwater, putting him to death, and when you come up, you come in the newness of life, symbolically, okay? It's a public confession of what has happened already in your heart. We are empowered to live above sin, verse 6 and 7 says, by the new birth, because we're born again. So we have died to sin, we live to the newness of life in the new man. The old man is crucified with him, verse 6 says. The meaning of crucify is to put out of business. In other words, now we have a divine nature that we can say, no, we don't feed the old man. We don't throw him chunks of meat to keep him alive. We make sure that you don't walk in the flesh because you will add hurt to yourself. You, 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 know, you, you get involved in things that you shouldn't. Uh, you blow your witness. The statement implies human responsibility in view of the divine accomplishment. Since God saved me and I trusted him and called upon by faith through grace, then there is an, an accountability to God. For this act. The result notice is that the body of sin. Nature might be done away. Or rendered inoperative. Verse 6 says. Out of business. The purpose being. That we not continue to be. Slaves of sin. Verse 6 says at the end there. That's what we were before. Regardless of where you were in life. Regardless of how moral you were, how ethical you might have been. Sin mastered us on whatever level. We could resist only so far, and after that, we gave in. Now as Christians, we can resist altogether. At the same time, we still can yield. And if I yield, then I become in bondage to it, right? Now as a Christian, I can resist. Before I was a Christian, I could not resist. There's the big difference. Verse 7, the reason is that we have been freed from the slavery of sin nature. And sin, it says. The end to the old life of sin. The end of yielding to sin nature. The ability is by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And the Father and the Holy Spirit. So it's a divine work in you, a divine work in me, through the work of Jesus Christ's salvation as we repent from sin. And this water ritual 
is a public confession of all that having happened in my heart already. Turn to Peter, 1 Peter 3, chapter 18 through 22. Peter tells us that baptism is a figure compared to Noah's flood. The illustration in 18 to 20 is that the flood was a type of baptism of the eight souls who were saved by entering into the ark, which was evidence of their faith in what God had revealed. And after death, they went to Sheol waiting for Jesus the Messiah. Listen here to three, eighteen. For Christ also um, suffered for sins, just for the unjust. They might bring to God, uh, being put to death in the flesh and made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits of prisons, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long suffering waited. In the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. And so, he demonstrates this, this parallel of the flood and the ark. In verse 21, the application is that as they believed God by faith and acted on his revelation, so water baptism is the antitype or the fulfillment. But not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but an answer to a good conscience through the efficiency to be saved through the resurrection. So, water removes no sin, the act of baptism. Okay? But it's an answer to a good conscience, revealing that you're born again, a public confession again, that you've been born again. Water forgives no sin at all. Okay? None at all. The proclamation being that Jesus Christ has gone into heaven in verse 22. Um, and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Because as you know, he went down to Hades. He scooped up those who died in faith. He took them to heaven. And so what used to be two compartments, after that is just one compartment. So when people die today, if they're Christians, they're instantly present before the Lord. Second Corinthians 5, 1 through 8. If they die without Christ, they go here to what in the Old Testament is Sheol or the New Testament, Hades, the one compartment. Jesus gives that in Luke 16 when the rich man and Lazarus, two different compartments. Peter says here he descended to the lowest parts there after his death, and he scooped them up, and it became one compartment now. So when people die with Christ, they go instantly present. When people die apart from Christ, that's where they go. And they're waiting for the white throne judgment after the thousand year reign to be judged and then to be cast into the lake of fire. That's the second death. That's eternal separation from God. And that's the best way to describe death, eternal separation from God. You do not cease to exist. It is not annihilation. You are alive forever, either in heaven or in hell. All that depends on how 
you live and whether you live through Jesus Christ here on earth as your Lord and Savior or not. God does not decide that. You decide that. Now, water baptism then was and is a symbol of the reality of salvation. But it's not salvation in itself, okay? It's a public confession of what has happened in your heart already. Now, water baptism should not be required then for salvation. Having seen all this, it should not be required. Does that mean I don't believe in water baptism, that we don't practice? Sure we do. We're going to do it. Let me explain. A man or a woman is saved by grace through faith, and not of themselves, the gift of God. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Grace is unmerited favor, undeserved. Regardless of what you committed before you were a Christian, regardless of what was done to you, <clears throat> you are forgiven completely, you are made whiter than snow, you are a new creation. Now, here's the problem. I remember. So I have to remember what God has said to me, that I'm a new creation. There's no condemnation of those in Christ Jesus. And that even though people knew my past and know my past and they know what I did, and they're not Christians, and I tell them that I've been forgiven, and they don't like that. In fact, sometimes they'll mock it. But the Word of God tells me that if I trusted the Lord... Then he's made me brand new. Peter says, let no man call that common which God has cleansed. Remember the vision that he got there up at Joppa? Don't you ever call common what God has cleansed. So he's made you a new creation. You have to make sure that you don't live by condemnation of Satan. Here's the difference between conviction. Conviction as a Christian is when you are doing something you're not supposed to. And the Holy Spirit says, what in the world are you doing? Huh. Condemnation. Satan rubs your nose in sins that have been forgiven. Are we clear on that? You don't pay attention to condemnation. The blood of Christ has cleansed you from those old sins. Conviction, we better respond. We better obey. Stay right. Faith is God's enabling to believe what he has declared. We don't believe because we are so smart. We believe because God has imparted to us the new birth and regenerated us. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, Romans ten seventeen. God initiates through his gospel, we respond through repentance. We do not save ourselves, but we are responsible to respond to God. Whether we agree that we're sinners and want to be saved, or whether we reject that we're sinners and think we don't need to be saved. I make that, that choice. A man or woman's salvation is completely a work of God by the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross then. Whoever believes in the gift of God will be saved, John 3, 16 says. Whoever. It doesn't say only those people who have not committed these ten sins. 
only people who didn't commit this sin more than three times. It says, whosoever believes shall have eternal life. And so I am born into warfare. All of a sudden, God is telling me some incredible things about me. About my present. Despite my past. And I have to believe God. What he has told me. Paul says. Doing one thing. Forgetting those things that are behind and pressing forward to those things that are ahead. If you are living in the past constantly, you will never enjoy your salvation. You will be self-condemned. You will be accused by Satan and everybody else who goes along with that. You must understand that you have no past why are you living there? Live in the present. Press through the future. One thing, forgetting those things that are behind and pressing forward to the things that are ahead. Now, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. John 10, 3, 13 says. Once again, how can you fit the doctrine of Calvinism for only those who God has unconditionally elected. When the Bible continually says, whosoever, whosoever, whosoever. If Calvinism is true, he would say, those who are unconditionally elected. It's not a biblical term. It's a man-made term that is unbiblical. It contradicts the scriptures and the doctrine of salvation. Whoever comes to the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, the only one who can save. 2 Timothy 2.5 He is the mediator between man and God. No one else. So he is the intercessor who can speak to the Father on our behalf. Whoever believes the words of Jesus from the cross then understands that at his death and at his resurrection, the entire atonement, what is necessary to be saved, was accomplished. As he said in John 19.30, it is finished. So I'm trusting only, solely, entirely, completely, the work of Jesus on the cross as he became the Lamb of God, to take over the sins of the world, the propitiation for our sins, and not ours alone, but the whole world. 1 John 2, 2. He died for all. But not all are going to be saved because not all want to be saved. Not all embrace the gospel. Many reject the gospel. Every believer should be water baptized then in obedience to the words of Jesus about the Great Commission. But it certainly is not an addition or completion or supplement to salvation. Once again, we go back to what I said previously. When I get water baptized, when I baptize you tonight, you are saved already. You are coming publicly before these witnesses to declare that you are born again and it's a public confession of what already has happened in your heart. 
That's all it is. We'll pray for you. If you haven't received the baptism, that God will baptize you. And God can baptize you at the same time. God can impart gifts. And we'll pray for that. But um, you're born again. Paul declared that he thanked God that he baptized none except for Crispus and Gaius and the house of Stephanus in 1 Corinthians 1, 14 through 17, lest some in Corinth would make him a party split to Christ. For God had not called him to baptize, but to preach, he said. Now, if water baptism is a requirement for salvation, then Paul was speaking blasphemous there when he says, God did not call me to baptize, but to preach. Preaching is what makes you born again. Baptism is just like your birth certificate. If you lose your birth certificate, does that mean you were never born into this world? Of course you were. Paul said, for Christ did not send me, to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. 1 Corinthians 1.17 So Paul recognized that though water baptism is to be done in obedience to Christ, it did not affect the work of Christ on the cross. Otherwise, the words of Paul, as I said earlier, would be blasphemous. The water baptism is compulsory for salvation, then you are saying that the atoning work was not finished at the cross. And we reject that completely. The two thieves on the cross were saved. No, they were offered salvation. One accepted, the other rejected. Jesus said to the one, Today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, can you imagine Jesus telling the centurion, listen, I just promised this guy he'd be with me in paradise. He doesn't have much. Please get him down. Go baptize him. Put him back up here. People say, well, the thieves on the cross were Old Testament. Really? My Bible tells me that all did prophesy until John the Baptist. They were New Testament saints, the two thieves on the cross, not old. Okay, so uh, they are the greatest witness. But more than that, we have the very clear teaching that water does not take away any sin at all. And so water baptism should not be required for salvation, yet practiced by the church. And encourage people to be water baptized as a public confession of what has happened in your heart already. And it should be a joyous thing. Now, it's a little different. We kind of clap when you get baptized here and all that. Uh, in, in, in the days of Paul and Jesus, uh, when you were water baptized, you were marked. There was an X on your back uh, under persecution. <laughs> so it's a little different. Um, there's some ministries over in, in Turkey and, um, and believers in Iran who have to get baptized in secret. They have to be careful. Because when they're found out, they are marked for persecution. And we don't have any danger of that here. We still have freedom in America, at least up to this morning, as I checked. Um, but we don't know how long the way things are going. But as of yet, uh, we, by the grace of God, as Christians in the Church of Christ, have always been able to live our faith out in liberty without any real persecution. And um, that's the grace of God. 
And so I pray that, that you understand now what water baptism a little different and just, um, just um, to expand a little rather than just teaching about water baptism, I wanted to give you the uh, contrast between water baptism of John and Jesus, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the distinction and that Jesus never went back baptized in water, but his disciples did, and that it's only a public confession so you understand exactly what it is. Okay? And so when people ask you about water baptism, that you can give them an answer with a reason that lies with meekness and fear, as Peter says. And so let me pray and we'll, we'll dunk you. Okay? Father, thank you for your grace and love, your goodness. We thank you for tonight. We pray you continue to speak to our hearts, Lord. And Father, for those that are here that are going to get baptized, you would just uh, prepare their hearts. And Lord, we just thank you for them. And Father, for if anybody's here who doesn't know you, that they would call on your name, that they would realize their need of salvation first, and that the rituals mean nothing if you're not born again, Lord. And so, Father, we do thank you. And just as you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, maybe you're religious, maybe you had, we were baptized as an infant, and you think that that secures your entrance into heaven. Um, I hope you've seen that it does not. Um, Jesus says we must be born again or we will never see the kingdom of God. And so if you've never been born again, you can ask him in your heart right now to forgive you of your sin, to make a new creature of you, to give to eternal life. And that's by grace through faith. None of us deserve it. Not I, not one person in this room. So if you want to be born again, maybe you're over the internet. This is your prayer to the Lord, not to us. And he's going to save you right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.